Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kira Mulvaney. Uh, Eric, last week we talked about Josh Warrington and how he would be looking forward to eating and drinking and having sex with his wife after his impressive win over Kiko Martinez. Uh, it transpired shortly after the fight that Warrington actually broke his jaw during it. And, and now... One has to wonder how many of those things he's going to be able to do. I mean, specifically, is he unable to eat um, anything? <laughs> uh, I think I see what you're getting at. Uh, yeah, you know, there, there are some things that you can put in a blender and eat through a straw and some things you can't. Um, you know, what Josh Warrington is into, I'm not sure. Um, maybe this is going to take some of the fun out of it for Mrs. Warrington. Right. You know, be, because she might be the one having to prepare his food in a blender and wait on right. hand of foot. That's what I meant by that. Nothing else. Right. I mean, some things are best eaten raw. <laughs> Move along into the show quickly. I believe I just did that. All right. Sinking to your level and then beyond. Anyway. <laughs> My level. Detloff's level. That's Let's right. Detloff. Yes, let's blame fault. him. Absolutely. Although, uh, you know what? Our, uh, our our friends at the award-winning Morning Combat podcast, I feel like they, they go low all the time. It's okay that's if, true. It's okay Works if we them. dip a toe in those waters. Right. And congratulations, yes. by the way, to our colleagues there at Morning Combat for winning, what was it, best uh, best sports podcast of the year? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. That's not too bad at all. Uh, we probably came second. <laughs> that's That's what I'm assuming. I'm not going to ask any follow-up questions to find out for sure. Best to just assume we're second place and be done with it. Right. So coming up on this episode of what we're going to assume is the second best sports <laughs> podcast of the year, uh, we will be talking with rising star Sebastian, the towering Inferno, Fandora. Uh, we'll look at the news of the week, uh, including the announcement of this year's awards from the Boxing Writers Association of America, which doesn't include a podcast section. Yet. Um, Eric will hit me with a new top five challenge. And given that my last one for him proved tougher than either of us expected, I'm braced for the worst, Eric. I dredge to think what you're going to hit me with. Um, but <laughs> first, <laughs> indeed. But first, let's look ahead to this coming Saturday, April 9th. We're at the Theater at Virgin Hotels in Las Vegas, formerly the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino. Showtime Championship Boxing stages a 154-pound triple header. The main event features the aforementioned undefeated Sebastian Fandora taking on once beaten Ericsson Lubin with a title shot on the line. The co-main features former titleist Tony Harrison taking on Spain's Sergio Garcia, but we begin with the first fight on the card. Brian Perella against Kevin Salgado. Eric, what can you tell us about these two? I can tell you we're getting two very different levels of experience here. Uh, Perella hasn't had a ton of pro fights, record of 17-3-1 with 14 KOs, but he's been a pro for a decade. He's 33 years old, and he's faced plenty of notable opponents, including Jordanis Ugas, Luis Calazo, 
Bradis Prescott, Abel Ramos, and most recently, another fighter on this card, Tony Harrison, Salgado is 14-0 with nine KOs in a little over five years as a pro. He's just 24, and he hasn't faced anyone you've heard of. Every single fight in his native Mexico, and only one opponent had double-digit wins. It appears Salgado can fight, though. Uh, he won 38 of his 40 amateur fights, and boxing is in the blood. Uh, the name Juan Carlos Salgado should mm. ring a bell for serious fight fans. He's Kevin's brother, 13 years older, who famously scored the 2009 upset of the year with a first-round KO of then-unbeaten Jorge Linares. This Salgado looks like a talented prospect. He can punch. He goes to the body well. He's aggressive. But this is a huge step up in class. This is only his second scheduled 10-rounder. And to make things a little trickier, he's taking on a southpaw in Perella. Um, Perella is trained by a guy you might have heard of, Roy Jones. Uh, this is their <laughs> second fight together. Their first was the aforementioned Tony Harrison fight. And that was the best result of Perella's career as he boxed very effectively and ended up with a 12-round split draw. So that's what we're dealing with here. A known quantity against an unknown quantity. A real crossroads fight. We should have a pretty good idea of what we have in Salgado by the time this one is done. Now, looking at this card as a whole, there's something of a six degrees of separation feel about it. As I mentioned, Perella's most recent outing was a draw against former titleist Tony Harrison, who is one half of the co-main event, taking on Spain's Sergio Garcia. Harrison is 28-3-1 with 21 wins by KO, and all three losses coming by way of stoppage. All those stoppages came late in fights in which he was either winning or competitive. Uh, KO 11 to Jermel Charlo, KO 9 to Jared Hurd, and KO 9 to Willie Nelson. Garcia has lost just once against 33 wins, uh, and continuing our six degrees of separation theme, that loss was in his most recent outing against one of the two fighters in the main event on this card, Sebastian Fundora. So, Kieran, we have a former titleist who hasn't won a fight since 2018 and a relatively unknown import from Spain who's trying to avoid going 0-2 in the United States. Who has the most at stake here in this fight? I think Harrison. Uh, you know, like like you said, only a few fights ago, he was really at the very pinnacle, having handed Jamel Charlo his first and only defeat so far in a close and, and compelling contest. And uh, in the rematch, he fought extremely well until Charlo broke through in the 11th. Um, he was out for all of 2020, as were many boxes. Mm -hmm. um, but during that time, it wasn't just generically out because of COVID. Uh, he had to deal with the trauma of losing his father and coach to COVID. Um, and then in that one fight he's had since then, he had that surprising draw uh, against Brian Perella, uh, a fight in which at times he was actually outworked. So he's in a peculiar situation, really. You know, the, the top level of the 154-pound division from a few years ago uh, has gone through something of a refresh. Uh, Jarrett Hurd has fallen away. Julian Williams has fallen away. Jason Rosario has fallen away. Meanwhile, Brian Castaño has really come through uh, to the top. Uh, Tim Zeus entered the equation. And we'll see on Saturday whether Sebastian Fandora can really add himself to, to that list. And the holdovers from a few years ago, Jamel Charlo, Erickson Lubin, Harrison, they're, they're battling to stay in there. Mm. It feels as if that generation of junior middleweights has yet to fully achieve, I think, the level we expected of them. Um, 
yeah, to some extent, maybe Harrison already overachieved and that, you know, he wasn't necessarily expected to beat Charlo in the first place. But if he wants to stay in that mix at the top of this division and not get lost a little bit in the shuffle and overtaken by the younger guys who are coming through, he really needs to beat Garcia. Um, Garcia also wants to join that club and he'll see that as a possibility. But for the first 33 fights of his career, he came nowhere near the United States and he did just fine. If he does lose to Harrison, depending, of course, on how he loses, um, he certainly won't be out of options on this side of the pond, especially if he does put up a good performance. But he can always reset and continue his career in Europe, do well for himself, maybe pick up some more wins and then have an opportunity to come back over. Uh, it would be in a sense that, yeah, he'd miss an opportunity to really advance, but he wouldn't necessarily be knocked back. Harrison with a defeat really would be knocked back, I think. His clock yeah. is starting to tick here a little bit. Yeah, agree. Um, and so on to the main event. Um, Erickson Lubin, we just talked about, is 24-1 and with 17 KOs. Remarkably, even though, as I said, it feels like he's been around for a long time, he's still only 26. Um, Sebastian Fondora, who's only 24, is 18-0-1 with 12 KOs. Lubin's undefeated in six since suffering a first-round KO loss to Jamel Charlo. Fandora hasn't swum in waters as deep as those that Charlo swims in, but he has been putting together a series of strong outings, uh, including, as we just mentioned, against Sergio Garcia. So we've got one fighter on the way up, one who's hovering near the top and still looking for the big result that will propel him to a title. So I guess my question is somewhat similar, really, to the one you just asked me. Can Fandora afford a defeat here more than Lubin can? Well, it's complicated, but ultimately, yes, I, I think Fundora can afford a defeat more than Lubin can. But if he loses, depending on how he loses, Fundora, the perception of him could really tumble. It has just been such an uphill battle for him to get himself taken seriously, to be seen as more than a novelty act. Um, you know, he's not the funhouse mirror butterbean. He's not some four-round sideshow act. Yes, he has a truly unique build at six foot five and a half and 154 pounds. And, you know, I've joked that he looks like a praying mantis with these impossibly <laughs> long, skinny arms and legs. And the first few times we saw him, it was just that fascination. Whoa, you gotta get a look at this guy. Which did, before long, transition into you know what? He makes really fun fights. And then just recently, the last two hmm. years or so, it's transitioned into, we have to take this guy seriously as a fighter. He might just be going places. He could be a legit contender, maybe even a future champion. But it, it's just been such a challenge for him to have us evolve our thinking in that way. Hmm. You know, so I think he has a lot at stake in the sense that if he loses badly, all that hard work is undone. You know, mm. if if he's stopped inside, say, four or five rounds, if he's basically blown out by Lubin, I expect people will just completely write him off as a serious mm. contender. It's kind of back to square one. Now, if he loses in a competitive fight, different story. He, he can definitely afford that kind of defeat more so than Lubin can afford any defeat because Lubin does have that one unfortunately unforgettable loss on his record. The first round loss to Charlo, Lubin had just turned 22. Um, it wasn't necessarily easy to get out of people's minds, but because he was so young and he's won six fights since, I think that loss is largely forgiven now, but a second mm. one at age 26 with Lubin now in his prime 
that's a lot tougher. That's a huge setback if that's what happens. Um, a few other quick notes uh, on this fight. Uh, both guys fight southpaw, which can sometimes be a recipe for a dull fight, but I don't think that'll be the case here. Neither of these guys are your classic southpaw stinker. Um, Lubin is trained by the excellent Kevin Cunningham, an excellent trainer, and one of the most accomplished trainers of southpaws of modern times. Fundora, meanwhile, is trained by his dad. He comes from a fighting family. His sister, Gabriella, is an undefeated pro boxer. And to put a spotlight on the height factor, Lubin is 5'9 and a half. That is precisely the average height of the top junior middleweight fighters. That is precisely eight inches shorter <laughs> than Fundora. This is a fascinating challenge for both fighters, if you ask me. All right. Well, look, before we make our picks for the card, let's actually turn to this week's guest. And he is one of our very favorite up and coming fighters. And he is one half of the main event on Saturday's card. It is Sebastian, the towering Inferno Fundora himself. Sebastian, thank you for joining us and welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thank you for having me. Sebastian, you've been stepping up the opposition the last couple of years, facing quality contenders like Nathaniel Gallimore, Jorge Coda and Sergio Garcia. How does Erickson Lubin compare, in your opinion? Would you say definitively he's the toughest test of your career to this point? Uh, on paper, on paper, he's the number one. But uh, like you said, all those three fighters, they were tough fighters. This last fighter we fought was an undefeated fighter with 30 plus fights. So uh, I, I ranked them all the same. It's just like I said, on paper, he's uh, he's better. Okay. I am curious about the the pace at which you're proceeding here that, you know, like I said, these last couple of years, you've been taking on these good opponents and and Lubin on paper, the best of them. You're only 24 years old. You could have waited another year or two, I think, for this kind of test. And I don't think you would have faced much criticism. So why now? Uh, I feel like this was planned. My dad was my dad mentioned this like a couple years ago when I was like 18, when I first started professional. He said by 24, we'll be fighting for or title or or around there, at least. And look where we're at, 24, and we're almost probably a step away from fighting for that title. So obviously, you know, one of the first things that people talk about with you is your height. And you obviously lean into it. You know, the Towering Inferno is one of the best boxing nicknames right now. I think it's terrific. But do you ever get a little bored with it? Do you ever think, come on, people just talk to me about my boxing ability. I know I'm tall. You know, maybe at first, but now it's just I learned to live with it. You know, everybody's going to always look at my height. I go to the store and if there's an old lady reaching for a soda can or anything, I'm going to go and go help her. So uh, it's a blessing and I, I take advantage of it. You're talking to two five foot seven podcasters here. So there's just a lot of jealousy on this side of the conversations. So. <laughs> right. It's, it's not only the old ladies who need your help. At the exactly. Sometimes just the middle aged <laughs> men also. Um, so, all right. So, so we have to do it, Sebastian. We have to ask you a couple of additional questions about your height. Uh, so as I understand it, you had a massive growth spurt at age 14, going suddenly from five, six to six, one. What was that experience like? Like, like I'm picturing a, like a, a werewolf transition in a movie, like <laughs> what is happening with my body, but I assume it wasn't quite that sudden and dramatic. No, it wasn't that, but, uh, it's just, I, I was taller than everybody. I was even taller than the teacher. So <laughs> it's just, uh, I don't know. It's, it's just different, I guess. It, it made me stand out even more than I was. Because I always, I always was taller than everybody in school. But when that happened, and I knew it was going to happen because my brother, my older brother is 6'3", and my younger brother is 6'5", too. So 
It just, uh, I knew it was going to happen. It just when it was going to happen. Okay. So, so the obvious sport when you're over six feet as a, as a high school freshman uh, is to get you into basketball. Was that ever an option for you? No. And uh, I came and dribble ball. I oh. came, I, you know, I could barely even grab the hoop. So I don't even bother with that. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and, and I understand that you claim that you could make 147 if you had to. Is, really? You, that you believe you could? I, I definitely can. I definitely can. It's not a problem. It's not a problem at all. I walk it this way, so it'll be really easy to do that. Wow. So, so at 154, so you look at yourself and you're just like, nah, a little, little too tubby. Let's, let's drop a few more pounds. <laughs> if, if I wanted to, but I feel comfortable at this weight. I walk it this way and this is the way I'm going to stay out for as long as I can. So I'm curious, you mentioned that you, you turned pro, you know, at, at 18, but I'm curious about what got you into boxing. At what point uh, in your life did you begin to think that this was an option for you? I started boxing. Um, I, I was in, introduced in boxing since I was like three or two years old. My father was a professional fighter. My older brother used to box too. He turned pro before me. So seeing him turn pro at 18 definitely made me want to do it uh, or at least try it out. And I was really good at it too. I've been boxing my whole life. Our, our family's a, a boxing family, so even my mother boxed. So, oh, it's just always, always, always been there. Oh, okay. Were there any particular boxes that you liked to watch or model yourself on when you were growing up? And, and actually, do you have anybody that you really like to watch now? Uh, I, I used to like Marquez. Marquez was a very action-packed fighter. He's a strong fighter, uh, especially with the Pacquiao fights. Um, I like seeing Gennady Golovkin. I like seeing the uh better reef he's another tough strong fighter i like fighters like that so just go and just put the pressure and knock you out yeah an action fighter fan that explains a lot about you know when we when we watch you fight that that's that's the kind of fighter that you like to watch i i, I gotta follow up on one of the answers that you just gave to kieran your mother was, was a boxer <laughs> like she actually had fights or she just messed around in the gym to what to what extent uh did, did your mom she was, she was an amateur she was an amateur and she won the state golden gloves so that's as far wow. i think she had three fights but she still tried it and that's wow. everybody in the family including wow. my mom so <laughs> oh, that's great that's amazing yeah all right, so so Kieran was just uh, touching on on your your style and how these action fighters that that you're into say a little something about why you fight the way that you do. One particular action fighter that people immediately think of is Diego Corrales because he also looks like he should be pot shotting from the outside, but instead he often fights on the inside. And you know, boxing theory tells us that that's all wrong. That that you're giving away na your natural advantages by fighting that way, but. Do you just feel that you're able to leverage your punches better that way? Does it does it just feel natural to you to fight that way? Yeah, I feel I feel it natural. It's just I like to fight. I like to fight, even if I'm getting hit. Especially when I know I'm stronger than the fighter, it might be risky at all. But that's just the way. That's just the style I like, and and people like to people like to see that too. So. That's what I bring. Do you get some pushback from your corner sometimes, though? Uh, is, is your dad there, you know, telling you, I, I know you like to fight, but maybe it would be a little smarter to, to jab more this round? Of course, of course. It's, <laughs> it's, it's still a sweet science. You still got to think about what you're doing. You don't want to get hit with every single punch. But uh, like I said, it's just something, it's my, it's my nature to go in there and just fight. So Erickson Lubin's never fought an opponent taller than 6'2". He's only twice fought foes taller than six foot. He hasn't fought a southpaw since his third pro fight, which was eight years ago. 
do you feel that you have everything to make a real nightmare matchup for him? Do you, do you think you're just really going to give him a lot of trouble on Saturday night? Why not? Why not? I think uh, the Tyrant Inferno is going to do what he does best. I'm not worried about really uh, what Erickson Levin's going to do. I'm just going to go and do what I do and get the win. Are you what the kind of guy who likes to watch video uh, a lot of your opponents? Or do you kind of leave that to your team and you just get in there and, and do the business? Yeah, I just I just go in there and do what my dad tells me. So mm-hmm. what's that going to be on Saturday night? Finally, what are viewers who tune in? What are they going to see? That's <laughs> a secret. <laughs> but can we expect an exciting fight again? Definitely, definitely. Expect a fight. Awesome. I expect an exciting fight always when I step into the ring. That's why awesome. I can guarantee Awesome. Hey, Sebastian, look, it's great to talk to you for the first time. We're really looking forward to it. I'm sure it's gonna, we're going to be talking to you a lot more down the road. We're going to be seeing a lot more of the Towering Inferno, and we're looking forward to it. So thank you very much indeed for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is great. Thank you. That was fun. I yeah. liked that. That was our first time talking with Sebastian, and I'm already looking forward to chatting with him again. He was a good dude. Yep. Um, okay, let's make our predictions for this Saturday's card. As a reminder... After the Saturday night massacre the other week, <laughs> I extended uh, uh, my lead in our picks competition. It's now 20 points to 12. Uh, I don't remember whose turn it is to pick first, but instead of looking back and figuring it out for myself, I've decided to be magnanimous from my position of strength. I'll let you make the first pick, Eric. Uh, how do you see Bryant Perella versus Kevin Salgado? You'll let me make the first pick. I, I think it's actually advantageous to pick second because it allows you to hear my brilliance and potentially steal it. So uh, yep, you I'm already you're... running out the clock with, uh, <laughs> with eight months to go. <laughs> I'm I'm accusing you here, Kieran, of false magnanimity, if, uh, if that's the word. Uh, but that's fine. I, I like overcoming the odds and uh, I like overcoming the extreme skullduggery of my unscrupulous opponent. Excuses of being coming in <laughs> thick and fast already. Yes. I'm just trying to attach as many asterisks as I can to what is clearly tracking toward a loss <laughs> for the year. Um, but anyway, all right. I got to say, this card, this matchmaking, there isn't an easy pick on yeah. the card. This one is so tough because we really don't know what we have in Salgado. Yeah. I watched what I could on YouTube. He looks good. But the opposition is just so insignificant, falls so short of what Perella can do. It's impossible to know. Salgado seems like a good offensive fighter, solid power, good body punching, good jab. Tough to tell if he's a good defensive fighter. Perella, man, his resume is all over the place. You know, the draw against Harrison, 10th round KO loss to Abel Ramos in that fight where he was way ahead and got Mm. dropped twice in the 10th and time had expired, but Jack Reese stopped it in very dubious fashion when Perella had already lasted the distance in my view a controversial loss there he lost a close one to Colazzo. he lost badly to ugas but it's ugas um i don't know just got to go on gut here and my gut is telling me salgado has superior talent and perella is that guy who finds ways to not quite win so based on little more than a hunch <laughs> my pick is salgado by close decision. Uh, let's call it a split decision, in fact. All right. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance, avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You don't want to find out. Mayor of Kingstown, new season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount Plus. Um, you know, I agree with you in the sense of this is a tough card to call. Mm-hmm. I think this is, you know, strictly from the perspective of our picks competition, this could either end up really closing that gap right up immediately or 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 widening it. I would not be surprised if we are all over the place and very different from each other with all of our picks. We are different with this one. I'll tell you okay. that. All right. Um, you look at Pirella's record, yeah, you talked about this. It doesn't seem that impressive. But, you know, until his draw with Harrison, he was campaigning at welterweight. He said that trying to make 147 pounds was killing him. Add to that the fact that his last outing, which was arguably his best outing, was his first with Roy Jones in his corner. He kind of has the feeling of one of the – sometimes it happens that a guy can sort of be reborn partway through his career. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that might be the case a little bit with Pirella. Um, yeah, like you said, Salgado looks real solid. Uh, he looks strong. Uh, he looks uh, offensively minded. His punches might be a smidge wide, even against the kind of opposition he's faced so far. I wonder if that'll be a problem for him here. I, I wonder if Perella will be a little bit too fast, too skilled. His punches a bit too straight. Um, I, For me, on the one hand, this was actually of the three, the easiest to pick a winner, which doesn't mean it was easy. It was just the easier, relatively speaking. Right. But determining how that was going to happen, I, I don't know. If this had been a 12-rounder, I might have picked Perella to basically start picking Salgado apart with his straighter punches, maybe lump him up, cut him for late-round stoppage. I, I don't think he'll stop him over 10 rounds. And Salgado, it should be noted also, again, with the caveat of this quality of opposition, hasn't yet been down in his career. I think by the end... It may be fairly close early on, but by the end, I just think Perella will just be that bit too good and too slick for him. I'm going to pick Perella, and I'm going to pick him by a unanimous decision. All right. As for Harrison Garcia, another one I had a hard time picking. Yeah. Uh, I, I underestimated Garcia prior to his bout with Fandora. Um, and he really did what he could. He just simply couldn't get past Fandora's long arms. And I'm tempted to pick him. But then I look at Harrison, and yeah, look, he hasn't won since getting that decision over Charlo. But then he lost to Charlo in the rematch, like we said, in which he was very close uh, up until that point. Then came the draw to a possibly reborn Perella. You know, even like I said, even when he lost the rematch to Charlo, it's close. Even when he stopped by Hurd, it was close. I think Harrison is one of those boxers who's normally good enough to lose competitively and very occasionally pull out a win competitively against the very best boxers 
doesn't normally slip against the less than best boxers. That loss to Willie Nelson doesn't look fantastic, but subsequently, you know, he ha- he hasn't lost except to, to really good guys. I think it's hard to tell, but I think that Garcia is decent, but not one of the very best. I think Harrison has enough to pull out a decision win that will be unanimous again. But again, actually quite close. Okay, so you've got uh, Harrison by unanimous decision there. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, Harrison looked really flat in spots against Perella, but he was coming off a long layoff. It's hard to know if that was Tony Harrison getting a little washy Mm. or just having a bad night against a southpaw who could box a little better than he expected. Garcia, his fight against Fondora, the main thing I remember from it was how dull it was. Um, it was. E- easily the least exciting fight I've ever seen Sebastian Fondora in. I was disappointed in Garcia's failure to attack the body. There seemed to be opportunities there that he didn't take. But otherwise, he gave a serviceable account of himself. He looked competent, just like you said, couldn't quite figure out how to get close enough, how to attack Fondora. Yeah, this is another really tough pick, but I guess I would say... I was disappointed enough in Garcia in that fight that I can't quite pick him to get it done against a Tony Harrison who knows he needs to win this fight in order to stay relevant in the 154-pound title picture. Harrison has plenty of talent. There is a common opponent we can look to, uh, Sergei Rabchenko. Harrison stopped him in nine rounds in 2016. Garcia beat him over the distance three years later. That's an indicator that maybe Harrison is a level or even just a half level up on Garcia. So this one, we do not have any variation between our picks. I, too, am going to go ahead and take Tony Harrison by unanimous decision. Okay. And now for my main event pick. This is actually the easiest one to make on the card, not because the matchup isn't a toss-up, but because I am a full believer in the Raskin and Mulvaney curse. It's real, and it's not spectacular. Uh, Sorry, Sebastian, we didn't tell you before inviting you on the podcast, but uh, recent podcast guests have included Terrell Gachet, Chris Colbert, Gary Russell Jr., Caleb Plant, Jamal James, and Jericho O'Quinn. That's all just in the last six months or so. (laughs) There have been exceptions, uh, namely Brandon Lee and Stephen Fulton, but the rest of them... That list is long enough. Six fighters came on our show and lost, and at least three of them were big favorites to win. I think it qualifies as a curse, and who am I to pick against a curse? (laughs) Now, as I mentioned on the last Money Punch, the odds for this one, it's an extreme rarity. Minus 110 each way. There is no underdog in this fight. You almost never see that in boxing. But I'm going with the curse, and... Honestly, curse aside, I was leaning Lubin anyway. I do still wonder and worry about his chin. But, you know, Fundora isn't a Charlo-level puncher. I think Lubin has the speed and smarts to deal with Fundora's awkward length. He can outfight Fundora from mid-range, which is presumably where he'll try to keep the fight. I think it'll be tough and close for five or six rounds or so, but then I think Lubin will start to separate himself and Fundora will start to find himself in over his head. And I'm going to go with the stoppage win for Lubin. Okay. The curse continues via ninth round TKO, I think. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I went back and forth on this one, too. Um, Lubin's career has been a bit of a strange one, really. You think about the contenders who've cycled in and out of title shots at 154 pounds. It seems strange that Lubin's gone, you know, four years without getting a, a crack at the brass ring. Um 
since losing to Charlo, he's looked pretty solid at times. He's looked he looked great against EJ Smith, sent him into retirement. Looked okay against Gallimore and Gachet. Um Then he was in that very exciting stoppage win against Jason Rosario. But even there, he was wobbled a little bit, even when he had Rosario badly hurt. Right. I keep expecting him to show another level. I don't know if he ever will, but, you know, I still think he might at this time be a level above Sebastian Fandora. And you mentioned Kevin Cunningham earlier, and I think that's going to be a big factor, actually. When you have a guy like Kevin Cunningham in your corner, uh, I think that's going to really work to your advantage when you're in a difficult situation and you're presented with things you haven't seen before and you've got to try to work them out. And guaranteed, that's what happens when you face Sebastian Fandora. You know, I, I went into this leaning a bit more to Fandora until I sort of rewatched parts of that Sergio Garcia fight and looked again at our notes and what we said afterwards after that fight. And I was reminded, you know, that, you know, Fandora can be a fun guy to watch. And then I remembered that tweet that David Greisman uh, posted just after his or during his fairly dull win over Garcia, where he said, henceforth, he's just going to be Sebastian Dora. Right. Um, and, and I wonder if that Garcia win maybe points to some of the weaknesses that Lubin will try to exploit. Like he, Fandora, as we talked to him about, he does like to get in close and fight on the inside, but sometimes he's exciting when he does that. And then there are times like against Garcia where he doesn't always put full leverage behind his punches. He doesn't, he's just throwing punches in close without necessarily talking into them the, the way that, say, a guy like Tommy Hearns would do. Um, that's how he was against Garcia a little bit. He was a bit diffident in the way through his punches. And that can be enough when you're, when you're that size to just overwhelm a, a, a lot of opponents. And that might be the case against Lubin, too, if, if he allows Fandora to get into too much of a rhythm. Fandora can just pile up the rounds. But I do think Lubin has that better ability to mix things up, try different angles and approaches. Fandora might get a bit stuck in that one style. It's going to be a tough fight for both guys. I think some of the rounds are going to be awfully, awfully hard to score. It's going to be a question of what you lean to when you're scoring a fight. You're going to want activity. I suspect Fandora will be the more active fighter, throwing the more punches. Do you prefer, you know, the fewer punches that maybe land with greater effect, which I think will be the case with Lubin. But, and it's funny this, I actually put in my notes, the single biggest factor is the Showtime Boxing Podcast. First. <laughs> there you go. Um, I think it is going to be a tough fight for both men. I do think both guys are standing at the end, hmm. but I'm going to pick Ericsson Lubin to eke out. You know what? I think it's going to be such a difficult fight to score because it's such a contrast in styles. I'm going to go with a split decision for Ericsson Lubin. Okay, so we have one fight where we disagree on the winner, one fight where we have the same winner but different method of victory, and one fight that we agree completely. A little bit of everything. There you go. Exactly. All right, so the Showtime card is not the only boxing action taking place next weekend. There are several other cards featuring uh, quite significant fights. We're going to take a quick look at some of them. First of all, streaming on the zone from the Alamo Dome in San Antonio, Texas. Ryan Garcia returns to action, takes on Emmanuel Togo in a 139-pound uh, catchweight bout. Um, Eric, as we talked about, Garcia has been out of action since January 2021 when he recovered from a knockdown to beat Luke Campbell. His travails since then have been well publicized. What do you want to see from him on Saturday? Look, on paper, this isn't much of a test of Garcia as a boxer. Um, to go as a nice record, um, but I'm seeing Garcia listed as a 30 to 1 or even 50 to 1 favorite at the sports books. 
Tagal was picked because Garcia's people don't see him as overly threatening. At the very least, I think we can all agree he's a step down from Garcia's last opponent, Luke Campbell. So the main thing we're looking to see here is just after a long time off to deal with mental health struggles, is Garcia over them, or, or at least over them enough to perform at his best in the ring? Is he the same Ryan Garcia, basically? Um, I don't have any reason to expect he won't be, but that's what this is a test of. So so that's it. I'm, I'm not looking to see evidence one way or the other of, oh, he would beat Tank Davis, or he would lose to Tank Davis, or he would beat Cambosos, or any of that. This is strictly... Does he have his confidence? Is he comfortable in the ring? Is he dealing effectively with the mental health challenges? If he is, he figures to win this fight without too much difficulty. Um, meanwhile, in Tokyo, Japan, Gennady Golovkin aims to stay on track for a third meeting with Canelo Alvarez by beating Ryoto Murata in a middleweight contest. How real is the prospect of Murata upsetting the proverbial apple cart by handing Golovkin his first non-Canelo defeat, Kieran? It's real, but how real it is, is, is really depends on Gennady and what his level is. In the same way that you said, you know, the real question with, with Garcia is seeing what he has. This, there's increasingly a question mark over Golovkin and what his level is right now. Um, you know, he looked decent against Camille Zaramada last time out, less than impressive the previous time against Sergei Derevyanchenko, dominant against Steve Rolls. It's just hard to tell where he is right now. Um, one factor with Golovkin, he always used to like being busy. He liked fighting three yes. or four times a year. Now he's averaging one fight a year. I, and I don't know if that affects him negatively or whether, in fact, at his age, it's an unexpected like bonus for him. Um his strengths, you know, his ability to cut off a ring, his, his ring generalship have gradually eroded over the years. But at the same time, they were plenty good enough for him to fight Canelo Alvarez basically even over 24 rounds. So I suspect he's at the stage where he's not able to be at the very top level that he exhibited before on a consistent basis, but can do it most of the time. He should, in theory have more than enough for Murata, who doesn't really have the skill to challenge him. Don't Let's not forget, he was outpointed by Rob Brandt. Um, but Murata is tall, and he's rangy, and he does have that nice right hand. I doubt that that will be enough to defeat even this version of Gennady. But if Golovkin isn't fully at the races, it just might be. Um, also worth noting, the Garcia undercard features Gabe Rosado against Shane Mosley Jr. and Marlon Esparza taking on Naoko Fujioka. And in Costa Mesa, California, Michaela Mayer headlines an ESPN card when she faces Jennifer Han in defense of her junior lightweight belts. Anything leap out at you there? Well, I don't have a lot to say about Rosado Mosley. Um, it's an okay fight between two established names, but Rosado seems a clear favorite to me. So I guess what leaps out at me is the state of women's boxing and how mm. you can't throw a rock these days without hitting a decent female fight. Not that I would ever throw a rock and hope <laughs> to hit a woman. It's a figure of speech, although maybe also a sign that I got a little wrapped up in The Handmaid's Tale while pinching it over the last couple of months. <laughs> anyway, um, this past weekend, we had Savannah Marshall knocking out Femke Hermans in the third round with a devastating left hook. Elite female fighter there in action in Savannah Marshall. Then we have these two fights coming up next weekend. Marlon Esparza is an excellent fighter. And Fujioka is good, although notably she's 46 years old. Oh. She, she got a late start in boxing. She holds a flyweight belt, but she's my age, literally. She was born three weeks after me. Wow. So good for her for fighting at this level at this age, but also it 
makes me a little nervous. Um, but then the other fight you mentioned, Michaela Mayer, she's another top talent. Not the most competitive looking fight here against Han, but it's just nice to see the depth of talent in women's boxing keep improving, more women getting opportunities on TV. And of course, it's all building toward the biggie at the end of the month, Serrano. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. It is time for Tweets of the Week. And the honor this week goes to our friend Dan Canobio, who on Saturday tweeted, quote, had a very lucid dream that Colonel Bob Sheridan and the two paid Polly Malinagi spewed bizarre <laughs> stories about race, war, murder, and drugs for three plus hours. Dreams are weird. <laughs> and out of context, you might think, huh, that is a weird dream. But yeah, no, I'm, it's not the, not the strangest. But context is everything. And the context here is that on Friday, uh, Bob Sheridan and Paulie were hosting a live stream of a fight card from Mexico. And have you ever seen Best in Show, that Christopher Guest yes, movie? Yep. Bob Sheridan went the full Fred Willard character <laughs> in Best in Show. Just absolute batshit crazy. Instead of talking about the fights, he was talking about a time he got in a car accident and punched and knocked out the woman in the other car. Although he did say he wasn't proud of that, so there's that. There was supposedly an attempted carjacking last year that he talked about, which resulted, he said, in eight dead guys. There were ruminations on the use of the N-word, on no longer being able to call women bimbos, and even, of course, the Russian-Ukraine war. The only thing that was missing was uh, talking about throwing rocks at women fighters and eating raw food. Um <laughs> I must say, Bob has always been very, very kind to me. I, I, I know he, he's quite divisive as a, as, a, as a commentator, but he's always been very, very nice to me. But this was completely off the hook crazy. And perhaps the most amazing element of it was that Paulie Malanaji was the one who looked sane and was trying to keep everything on track and divert attention from what Bob was saying. Uh, the video has been excised from YouTube. Um, mm. But many thanks to Mark Ortega for clipping yes. the very best parts and posting them as they happen. Uh, for the record, though, uh, Dan's tweet wasn't quite right. Of course, it was a dream. Uh, Paulie wasn't the one for once spewing bizarre stories. I don't think he's wearing a rug. Uh, I saw him the other week and it certainly didn't seem that way. But that's really the least important element of all of this. Yeah, um, so I did not watch the full broadcast, of course, why would I? But I did see the clips Mark Ortega shared on Twitter, and uh, wow. Um, You know, Colonel Bob Sheridan is 78 years old. There are some people I'd trust with a microphone at that age, and some people I wouldn't. Uh, Colonel Bob is every single extreme element of the most cliched, crazy right-wing uncle at your Thanksgiving dinner stereotype. Um, As you mentioned, he spoke about killing eight people, beating up a woman. I don't know what was true and what wasn't. Um, Yeah, the the whole uh, N-word thing, he strongly hinted that he uses that word behind closed (laughs) doors. Uh, That wasn't great. It was definitely a different experience to see Paulie having to be the guy trying to change the subject. And that was basically every clip on Ortega's feed had Paulie at some point trying to <laughs> shift it. I can't imagine how many times total it happened during the show. Um, so, yeah, Dan's tweet here uh, puts it in the right perspective in that it feels like it must have been a dream. But nope, there are clips. This really happened. Uh, it was a very only in boxing type of broadcast that we had. Here. Yes, yes. Or at dog shows. Right. Only in boxing or in partially scripted comedic dog show (laughs) movies. That's where we are. 
All right, time for the news. Uh, Our main event is a good one. Should take our mind off the Colonel Bob of it all. Uh, A rematch between Bantamweight champ Naoya Inoue and future Hall of Famer Nonito Denaire has been signed. It's happening Tuesday, June 7th in Japan, and it will air live in the U.S. on ESPN. So fight fans, you might want to plan to show up to work a little late that day. (laughs) Um, Kieran, when their first fight approached, you were openly nervous about the fate of Donaire, but he surprised you, me, and most everyone else by putting on a spirited performance in defeat in what was the 2019 fight of the year. And since then, he's been on a strong run, outstanding back-to-back fourth-round knockout wins over quality undefeated fighters. Is it safe to assume you don't have the same levels of trepidation heading into the rematch? It's absolutely safe to assume. I'm, you know, I think in the even in the immediate aftermath of the fight, I was mildly embarrassed about the extent of my concern. It felt justified at the time, um, but Nonita put on a t- tremendous performance, and honestly. Even when you look at the entirety of his career, he might he's on one of the very best runs of that yeah. entire career right now. Yep. Especially when you consider the quality of opposition that he's beating. And like you said, KO4 is the way he's doing it. Um, it's really something. I'm actually looking forward to this now. Uh, I still favor it in a way to win. Um, perhaps more convincingly, having experienced on air once already. Um, but... I fully expect this to be another terrific fight. You know Nonito will give everything. I, I'm still hoping that Nonito is close to retirement yeah. uh, because I'm always happy when any veteran boxer is close to retirement and you there's always that fear that they're going to take that one or two fights too many. I would not be surprised if, win or lose, if he puts in another really good performance that he considers this the note to go out on. But I'm sure as heck not worried about his health the way I was the first time. I'm actually looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, our co-main news event this week concerns awards, and uh, so far, at least, uh, none of these awards have involved nominees storming the stage and slapping a <laughs> presenter, but it is boxing, <laughs> right. so it's presumably only a matter of time. Um, the Boxing Writers Association of America, of which you and I are both members, announced the winner of its 2021 awards. Uh, Fighter of the Year is Canelo Alvarez, uh, with Eddie Reynoso getting the nod as both trainer and manager of the year. Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder, 3-1 Fight of the Year. Uh, Ring announcer David Diamante won the Good Guy Award. Michael Buffer won the Long and Meritorious Service Award. And in surely the most deserved award ever handed out by anyone anywhere, the Klitschko brothers win the Courage Award. Anything you disagree with there? Is that basically your ballot? Well, it it might have been my ballot had I filled in a ballot. Um, (laughs) I got the email with the nominees and I made a little mental note to fill it out before the deadline, but I just never got around to it. Perhaps because some of the awards were so obvious, I figured Mm. my vote wouldn't matter. And the others, I guess I just didn't feel strongly about. Um, Canelo, clearly the fighter of the year. Fury Wilder, clearly the fight of the year. Can't go wrong with Reynoso for his two awards. And then the other three, they're almost always a bunch of worthy candidates. Some years I'll feel strongly about one of them, but um, good guy here. None of the candidates stood out over the others. Diamante, maybe more of a courage candidate than a good Mm. guy candidate, but that's fine. He wasn't beating out the Klitschkos for courage. um, So they gave him this one instead. Uh, Long and meritorious. uh, Recent tweet of the week winner buffer is a fine choice. Um, Although I wouldn't have been sad to see Scott Gertner win uh, the MGM's mm. longtime head of PR, a very nice and very helpful guy who, unlike Sebastian Fundora, happens to make us feel like tall men when we're standing <laughs> next to him. Oh, and, and by the way, um, you may be 5'7", Kieran, but for the record, 
I'm five eight and a half. Okay, I wasn't going to uh, correct you while we were is talking that like to Mike Sebastian. Tyson being five eleven. <laughs> no, listen, five eight and a half. That is my official height. There was actually a time in my prime when I used to say I was 5'9". That may have been an exaggeration or I may have started shrinking just a bit. But uh, no, I'm going 5'8 and a half. I'm definitely not 5'7", all right? Don't lump me in with you on that, okay? <laughs> anyway, we were talking about uh, BWAA awards. So the big takeaways there, uh, I didn't vote, but I'm perfectly fine with all the winners. But also, Raskin and Mulvaney gave out their awards more than three months ago. And those are well, the only year-end awards in boxing Absolutely. that matter. I agree. Uh, okay, news undercard. Uh, just a few other items of note. Uh, the George Cambosos Devin Haney fight is now official for June 5th in Melbourne, Australia. Going to be quite a week. Cambosos Haney, then Inoue Denaire a couple of days later, then Hall of Fame induction. Um, uh, another fight announced uh, Janibek Alim Knuli versus Danny Dignam for a middleweight belt. That'll take place on ESPN on May 21st with Jamel Herring in the co feature. We have a Jarrell Big Baby Miller sighting. The suspended heavyweight has been in camp with Tyson Fury, helping him prepare for this month's encounter with Dillian White. And in out-of-the-ring news, Javante Tank Davis rejected a plea deal stemming from an alleged hit-and-run and will now go to trial in September. And before that, he'll be facing separate charges of battery on May 18th, 10 days before his date with Raleigh Romero. And while he's at it, Davis has reportedly left the umbrella of Mayweather Promotions after his contract expired. Kieran, anything to dig into there? Um, yeah, the situation with, with Javante Davis and with that whole pay-per-view is just a reminder of what a messy business boxing often is. Um, no charges were pressed against Romero. Uh, Davis is innocent until proven guilty and specifically requested a jury trial rather than accepting guilt, I understand. So it's presumably right. confident of acquittal. Um, but yes, it's yet another uncomfortable subplot around a boxing event that everyone involved will will have to decide for themselves how to handle. Uh, I don't know what the reasoning is behind parting ways with Mayweather. He's not said anything particularly uh, bad about Mayweather that I'm aware of. And Mayweather himself posted a quite magnanimous statement to the effect that, you know, he'll always love Javante and wished him well. Um, it's boxing. It happens. Uh I see the other items. It makes sense for Fury to hire Big Baby. He's a shorter, strong heavyweight like Dillian White, even if they don't have tremendously similar styles. Miller's probably desperate for the work, so he's probably a bit cheap. Uh, as I understand it, I think Miller's suspension from Nevada for his PD use lifts in June, uh, after which he'll presumably be free to reapply for a license. So he probably also wants to get some work in himself. Right. Um, we talked about Cambosis Haney before. We'll talk about it a lot more. So I'll just say that it's great that it's official. And folks, get used to being able to pronounce Janabek Alim Kanuli because this man is a good fighter. Uh, he's only 11 and 0, but he already has stoppage wins over Rob Brandt and Hasim and Jakam. I think he's someone to watch. All right. I'm going to start working his name into my pre-recording mouth exercises to get my uh, get my jaw <laughs> warmed up. Janabek Alim Kanuli. Janabek Alim Kanuli. I'm practicing already. I'll keep I'll keep up with it. All right. Uh, we conclude the show with your next top five list assignment. I know you're worried about retribution, but yes. but A, my assignment last week wasn't that hard. Uh, and B, I know it was unintentional. You thought you were giving me an average challenge. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not going for revenge. My primary objective remains to make our podcast entertaining and interesting. And I'd label the difficulty or research required for this one to be pretty much average. Um, it's inspired by one of the gentlemen fighting this coming weekend, Gennady Golovkin, 
and by the plan for him this year, which, as we all know, is to fight Canelo Alvarez a third time in September. It will have been about four years since their second fight, and we worry that it's about two or three years too late. Now, maybe we'll be proven wrong. Uh, certainly, in a way, Denaire was an example of a fight that seemed to be happening too late to be competitive, and instead it was a classic. So we shall see if Canelo Triple G3 is happening a couple of years too late. Your assignment, Kieran, is to look back on boxing history and rank the top five fights that happened at least a couple of years too late. So you're counting down some bad or disappointing or one-sided fights that conventional wisdom says could have been great had they happened earlier. They can be rematches or rubber matches or first fights or whatever. And I guess in terms of criteria for how to rank them, I'd think of it this way. Rank them based on how perfect they are to reference when giving examples of fights that happen okay. too late. So your number one should be the ultimate example to point to of a fight that overmarinated. Number two should be the next best example and so forth. Good? Got it? I think so. I think so. So point of clarification, however. Okay. Just fights that were considered too late but nonetheless surprised us with how good they were are not really for this list. It's for ones right. that we thought were too late. And indeed we watched them and we're like, yeah, that was too late. Right. Like, ones that we can look back on and say, boy, I wish that had happened a couple of years gotcha. earlier. It would have been better. Um, and, and, and I think the nature of the beast here is that your list will probably tilt toward the modern and, and that's fine. Um, I, I will hold it against you if you don't, have a lot of examples from like a hundred years ago that crack sure. your list. Um, so I, you know, keep that in mind in terms of feeling like you need to pour over boxing history. Uh, you don't, I would just say, you know, glance at the big names of the past for possible, very obvious examples, but otherwise I don't think you need to dig too much deeper than that. I think everyone will understand if the list is a little more fights that happened within our okay. lifetimes. All righty. Okay, that's yes, and I think it's only the modern fight, more modern fights that we actually are fully aware of the circumstances in which they happen. Most right, of the time. that's the thing. It's it does hard. tend to fade away afterwards. Right, it's hard to know really like what was a fight that oh, people, in 19, it happened in 1942 and people were really clamoring for it in 39. Right. Yeah, yeah, we wouldn't know. All right, that sounds good. I like that. That's that's nice and and, and inventive. So that. Yes, that, that should be just about doable. Uh, come back in seven days to hear me bitching about what a difficult assignment <laughs> Yes. <laughs> All right, that will do it for another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Very many thanks to Sebastian Fandora for taking time out to talk with us. Uh, we will be back next week as we look back on a packed weekend of boxing and look ahead to Errol Spence versus Ordenis Ugas. And be sure to check out All Access, Spence versus Ugas. Episode one premiered on Linear on April 2nd and is available now on demand and on digital platforms. Episode two will premiere after Showtime Championship Boxing on Saturday. Will it be before Showtime? Before Showtime Championship Boxing, I think, on Saturday. Either way, you should be spending your entire Saturday night watching Showtime. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. How you survive, you make quick, smart decisions and you never let panic take the wheel. 
sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.